Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. We were on vacation this week, but we recorded this episode before we left. If there is any breaking news that happens to have happened this week, we will be covering it in our next episode. Now on to our episode. Hello, friend. So grateful you decided to spend some time with us. I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker, where can they reach out if they'd like to? You can find us on Facebook, which is Murdoch Podcast, and also on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. And, of course, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We have some emails and Facebook messages we will get to at the end of the program. But we're going to talk psychology today. Let's bring in Dr. Sherry Schwartz, a uh, forensic psychologist, college professor, special expertise, and many years' experience in Capital mitigation, sentencing, advocacy, victim outreach, trial consulting. She's authored, edited a college textbook on the intersection of psychology and law and continues to conduct and publish her research in that area. You can find her on Twitter at Trial Doc. And she has interviewed over 200 murderers or accused murderers. Hello, Dr. Schwartz. Hello. How are you? Oh, great, Sherry. Thanks for joining us. We were on the, a couple of Nancy Grace episodes together. But let's start with this. A forensic psychologist. What is a forensic psychologist? Well, a forensic psychologist is a psychologist who specializes literally in the legal system, in psychological disorders in general, but with individuals who have contact with the legal system. Forensic psychologists also don't just deal with mental health disorders. There's other branches where they might deal with things like eyewitness memory, things like that. Do you act as a witness during murder trials to kind of help persuade a jury of the possible mindset of the defendant? Sometimes I do. I'm not always called to testify, but that is, I'm retained as an expert. And then depending on the results of the um, mitigation investigation and what's found, um, sometimes you're not asked to testify because you don't have anything that's particularly helpful to say. It's obviously you've not met Alec Murdoch. You've not spoken to Alec Murdoch. You have just... You've listened to our podcast and read some things. So when we ask you these questions are more of a a general thing, but you've come across people with similar crimes committed. So when someone like Alec Murdoch, who is living what appears to be this dream life, appears to have it all, they've got this great job, family, they're making good money, but then they want more and more. And then the moral compass breaks Is there a trigger that happens or was that side of the personality there, but no one noticed or how does that progress and how do they just completely lose any sense of morality? Well, in almost every case that I've worked on, and there have been many, the one notable thing is that these individuals, yes, there are signs along the way. It's just hindsight is 2020 vision. You don't always see the signs. Mm Or you discount them, especially your closest people will discount those signs and sort of explain them away and just say, oh, that's the way that person is, or they wouldn't do anything to me. But there are, when we go back and we do that post hoc investigation to see what went wrong in their lives, you find many things along the way. And then when you add things into the mix, like drugs, right, which Mm -hmm. seems to be potentially a feature of this case, and that the power this ability to just sort of wave your hand and have somebody who fixes your problems, it's not often a snap in the way we think, oh, the person snapped. 
in cases like this, very often it's like you said, they want more and more and more and what they have is not enough. And then they get themselves into a hole where Mm -hmm. they kind of need to dig out. And I think that may be what we're dealing with here, what we're seeing. You mentioned uh, signs and and obviously we're just, I'm just talking in a generic sense. Right. What kind of a personality, what would be signs that someone through their youth or whatever indicates there's a possibility that they might go off the rails in this way? What are the the, the red flags, as you would say? The biggest red flag is a lack of empathy. When you see in someone that they really don't have any ability to place themselves in someone else's shoes and have really no care to speak of about how their behavior might impact the people around them. That is the biggest red flag. And it's not always the easiest to spot, especially when you keep company with somebody who, if they do have psychopathic tendencies, and again, I've never met Alec Murdoch, so I don't know that he does or he doesn't, but Generally speaking, somebody that does will have a remarkable lack of empathy, but they're very adept at mimicking normal human emotions, including empathy. They can fool people fairly easily. They're charming, glib, you know, those sorts of things. That's really interesting because he was described as well-liked. He would speak to people in the grocery store. And so I do think if these allegations are true, that he really had the ability to appear empathetic to people. Like you said, he was. Uh, we, we've heard that he was one of those guys who remembers people's names and that sort of thing. Yes. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's a red flag, but it shows you that, as you said, there can be two sides to the person you meet in the grocery store's coin there. Exactly. They may be a perfectly lovely person. And it's a shame because we don't want to walk through life and think that people who remember people's names could potentially be <laughs> yeah. a psychopath, right? right that's right. That, slippery slope, but it's accompanied by other things. And probably if you don't spend a lot of time with this person, you wouldn't necessarily take notice of those things. So I kind of also wanted to ask you, obviously there's a lot of money that is unaccounted for, and it seems that there were financial stresses. Does that also seem to go along with some of these behaviors? It can. Yes. I mean, I think when we're talking about the allegations in a case like this, the picture that starts to emerge is that it is about greed and probably um, getting oneself into a situation where, for whatever reason, there's just money is just bleeding out of the place, right? You know, he's he's just needs more and more money to cover whatever is going on. So money could be a motivator. I, I have to be honest, in most of the cases I've worked on, when money is the motivator, it's typically armed robbery. This brings up the question of the jump from this horrible white collar crimes. And I mean, horrible in the sense of it's always horrible, but he's picking on people who are usually not not a very good means. And then it jumps to violent murder. What kind of personality disorder does that happen? Is that, is that rare? Well, I don't think it, it well, murder in general is rare, but right. in terms of the comparison between white collar crime and violent crime, I think what we see that's, that's at the root of both is that lack of empathy that we were just talking about, right? The, the, mm-hmm. I want it, for me, this is going to be the means to my end. And I don't really have a lot of consideration for what's going to happen to the people that are impacted by this. Now, the remarkable difference between white collar crime and violent crime 
is that in white collar crime, typically what we're talking about is crime against an organization. So it's almost faceless in a way, if okay. that makes sense. But in violent crime, that's a that's more personal, right? Because you're you're perpetrating violence, inflicting physical pain and suffering on individuals. Well, can I just add something to that real quickly? Is that would add up in the Alec Murdoch thing, allegedly all this, because some of the people he took money from in the white collar situation were people he knew he knew well. So they did kind of have a face, which makes it the leap into the murder has some similarities as opposed to somebody who's just skimming off a hundred thousand clients who have money. You know, they can justify that. Right? Does this make sense what I'm saying? Absolutely. And this is what makes this those those two the intersection of those two things, white collar and violent crime, pretty similar. Because in this case, if he did take all of this money, this these were from individuals, right? And this these were not faceless, nameless people. These were people that he knew yeah. and took advantage of. And that is it, you know, allegedly. Yeah. And that is that would Closer. make that behavior very similar to a, a violent criminal. We know now he's been indicted on these murder charges. He's accused of killing his wife and son in a pretty violent, gruesome way. Have you interviewed other murderers who have killed a spouse and a child? Because this seems uncomprehensible to me as a, as a mom. Yeah, I can tell you that I have worked with many individuals who not necessarily have killed both in the same crime. Because when you're talking about that, like the family annihilation, familicide, that's a bit more rare. But yes, parents who have killed their children or step-parents, very often it's a step-parent or and or have killed a spouse. Is there, like in our minds, our, our, our non-psychotic minds uh, and people who haven't talked to murderers, we seem to make a difference between killing a wife and a kid, but in a murderer's mind or someone who has some sort of personality disorder, that difference might not be as much. Am I, is that possible? That's absolutely correct. The, the thing is, it's very hard for those of us that are normal functioning human beings that do have empathy, right? Like Seton just said, as a mother, she can't fathom that, right? As a parent, you can't fathom how, how do you kill a child, let alone your own child. But this, these are individuals who are different. Their brains, their minds don't work like everyone else's. And I, I want to be careful and to really highlight for your audience that these individuals in most cases are not seriously mentally ill. We're not talking about schizophrenia, bipolar disorder with psychotic features, things like that. That's actually really rare. In all the cases I've worked on, I don't come across very often individuals who are that seriously mentally ill. They are people that have had a lot of trauma in their lives and or a significant lack of empathy. And when you don't have that key ingredient, then you lack humanity in very simple terms. So um, what I'm hearing is also there's, when we talk about personality, personality disorder, you know, somebody might be a narcissist or, or whatever it right. is, that is a big difference in how the trial goes. Like a person can't just say, well, I am insane, a personality right. disorder and some sort of serious mental illness there. That is a, a legal line as well as, you know, from a psychology standpoint, different, right? 
Very different. Insanity is a legal concept. Competence to stand trial. These are legal concepts. You won't find those in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And this is the the odd intersection, or like I like to call it, the collision between psychology and the law, because psychologists need to come in and help the court make that decision if they are legally insane or incompetent to stand trial. And yet we don't have a diagnosis for that. We don't diagnose people as insane. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Getting just backtracking for a second, how does the forensic psychologist go about assessing someone in these situations? Well, if we're talking about um, insanity, that would be, that speaks specifically to at the time of the crime. So what was going through their mind at the time the crime was committed? Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories. You participate in dialogues. So you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. And that's not an easy thing to do, right? Especially if they're not seriously mentally ill. And now they're awaiting trial in jail. And they're able to have a lucid conversation with you. And they are otherwise competent, right? Because Mm -hmm. competence to stand trial speaks to in that moment, Right. They say at the time of the trial, but it really means in that moment when the psychologist is sitting in the jail with the person. I say in the jail because that's mostly where individuals awaiting trial for these types of crimes will be. And so when you're sitting across the table from them in that moment, are they oriented to day and time? Do they know who the judge is and what the judge's role in their cases? Do they understand the charges against them? Do they know who their lawyer is and what their lawyer is supposed to do? Do they know who the prosecutor is and what the prosecutor is supposed to do? And, you know, so competence is is a different deal. And somebody could be competent one day and not competent the next day. In terms of insanity, it's very difficult because, again, it's not a psychological concept. It's a legal concept. And it really has to do with trying to get to what was their mental state 
at the time of the crime. Did, and what's at the core of that is, did they know the difference between right from wrong? If you were to sit down with Alec Murdoch, like you've sat down with 200 plus people either were accused murderers or murderers, what kind of questions would you ask Alec? So the the first place that I start, uh, and this may surprise people, is is not with the crime. Because when you're doing any kind of mitigation, it first of all, it requires the, the defense attorney to have you appointed to do that kind of work. And you're, you're coming into the room with somebody you've never met. And just like I wouldn't walk in and start asking a stranger really deeply personal questions like, so tell me about that murder, <laughs> right? You have to get there eventually. I don't start there. Um, what I want to know about is about Alec. I want to know who who are you? How are you doing in the jail? What is your day-to-day life like in the jail? These are things that help to build some rapport, get to know the person a little bit, get to kind of understand how they're functioning psychologically at that moment, which is important because they need to be able to cooperate in their defense. That's one of the features of also being competent. And talking really about all kinds of things, you know, what about you know, where did you go to law school? Just benign things, small talk like you would have with other people. You know, where'd you go to law school? What made, what got you interested in that? Talking about childhood and really finding out family dynamics. And another key element is not just what the defendant tells you. It's about getting out there and talking to family, friends, colleagues, school teachers, getting hmm. hold of Every record you can possibly get on this person, uh, their college transcripts, their law school transcripts, um, any sort of police call outs to the home, any kind of, you know, if, if families have involvement with, in Florida, we call it division of children and families, things like that. I want every kind of record that I can get on this particular individual and even on their family members, if their family members will sign releases so that we can get those records. Because the goal is to put together a picture of what this person's life has been like that may have led them to this point. Do people typically cooperate or do you encounter situations when the defendant is not cooperating at all? There are times that the defendant isn't cooperative, you, you know, those, and in those cases, I let the attorney know I, I can't help you because if the defendant's not going to cooperate, I mean, then we're kind of, I, I'm getting paid, but I'm getting paid to sit there and kind of look at the defendant and I can move on to another case. The vast majority of cases, because what I learned during the course of the mitigation investigation is confidential unless the defense attorney deems that it's going to be helpful and supportive to, and and I should clarify this. I'm sorry. I I should back up a little bit so so as not to confuse the, um, the audience. When you do mitigation, it's all about sentencing, typically in death penalty cases or crime, very violent murders where life without parole, uh, is a possibility. And so the goal is to make, or to, to try to help the judge the prosecutor, the jury see that this person is not the worst of the worst. And so, yes, while they may need to be punished, they don't necessarily need to go to death row. So that's really what mitigation and sentencing advocacy is about. And so if it's not going to be helpful to that end, then the defense attorney is not going to let it come out. So in that regard, clients understand, the defendants understand that this is potentially to help them And so it's probably in their best legal interest 
to cooperate, mm -hmm. to, to talk and be honest and help the mitigation expert understand what happened in their life that got them to where they are today. Well, I guess on the other side of the coin, they can try to tell you things that uh, try to make themselves seem more th sympathetic, but I'm, I'm sure you know how to oh, read those do. things out. <laughs> yes. Oh, and they do. Oh, yes. <laughs> Before we let you go, I uh, what do you think when you watch TV, movies, and they have some sort of criminal minds, forensic psychologists, what is the big misnomer out there that uh, is depicted in those kind of shows about what you do? First of all, cases aren't solved in an hour, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, that for the victims, it's this is really, really real life. And it is not pleasant. I mean, Maggie and Paul Murdoch have family and friends and loved ones besides Alec who are grieving and suffering. And that, you know, that's real life. And you don't really see that right in something like um, criminal minds and right. things like that. Right. Because it's not entertaining. Right. That, that would make everybody really sad. So you don't really get to see that side of it. Um, and so though I will be honest, I do immerse myself in true crime. Hence, I listen to your podcast. I listen <laughs> to a lot of podcasts, but true crime. So I don't watch a lot of yeah. the dramatizations because frankly, it's hard to watch. I'm like, that's not reality. Yeah. And you get all the peripheral, even with a, a person who is a murderer, they, that person still has family who could be perfectly, I'm not talking necessarily an Alec Murdoch case, but they have family who is like, what happened here? Uh, and they are all relatively normal, right? I'm sure you've seen that. And this one outlier. Yeah, absolutely. And that's got to be really hard on a family, right? Very hard. And and listen, Alec, it would not surprise me if Alec Murdoch still has loved ones who, even if they accept that he possibly did all of these horrible things that he's accused of, still love him because he's their family member and they don't see him that way and they don't want yet another loss in their lives. Yeah. So this is real, real life trauma for, you know, the bystander loved ones. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned some of your cases, you've seen these murderers or accused murderers that you have interviewed and yet they have a mom and dad somewhere or whatever, who people are saying, what did you do to that kid? And I bet Absolutely. many times it's not uh, on well, the parents. They also many times have children. Alec Murdoch has another son yeah. who's still alive. And I mean, imagine for for this kid, who I, I think he's an adult now, but mm -hmm. still, I mean, his dad is facing who knows what. Mom and brother have been murdered, right? There's all of this suspicion about the, the Miss Satterfield who was with the family mm -hmm. for a really long time who would have known Paul and his brother since they were children. True, right. True. So there's a lot there for this young man. And, and then on top of it is a high profile case because we're, it's of interest and we all want to know what happened, not just for out of morbid curiosity, but also because we really seek to understand in the hope that at some point we can identify things like this sooner and make sure that we can save another family. Great point. I did have just one more question. I was looking back through my list. When you were looking at this, do you actually look at clues from the crime scene to kind of help you make your assessment? I mean, I will look at crime scene photos and 
mostly when I'm doing that, I, I want to have a sense of what the victim's family are going to see when they see those crime scene photos in the courtroom, because mm. they are very often gruesome. And so I also want to, to make sure that what the defendant is telling me matches up with what the evidence is. But I don't, and I don't think most forensic psychologists are really looking at it in the way that we think of like criminal profilers do, um, things like that, because it, it doesn't really tell us much. I'm looking more at, did the defendant give a statement to the police? What statements did they make to other people? What were the behavioral cues leading up to it. I just need to know, was it a stabbing? Was it a shooting? You know, and, and those sorts of things. For me, I mean, I'm not trained to analyze crime scenes. So that's a little bit out of my wheelhouse to, to really start looking at body placement, things like that, that crime scene investigators look at. You are an awesome interviewer. I really loved it. Dr. Sherry Schwartz. So interesting. And thank you for listening to our podcast. I feel honored. Well, thank you. Know, thank you. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at, at trialdoc, T-R-I-A-L doc. Dr. Sherry Schwartz, thank you so much. Sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you both for having me. This was great. Love that interview. So interesting. Uh, we have some uh, email messages and Facebook and Apple Podcast comments. Matt, please stop interrupting Seton. You've gotten a little better over the course of these episodes, but it's pretty disruptive and quit the mansplaining. I don't believe you have malintent in doing this. All in all, though, I appreciate you both. Thank you, Team Cricket, for the one-star rating. I know. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think they really meant to leave us a one-star. I think it was an accident. I, don't, I think that fine. was an accident. Sometimes the rating system yeah. can be confusing. It's fine. Do you feel I interrupt you? Sometimes. What do I? Sometimes. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, yes, I try to be... You know what? It's It's... A lot of times I will say, and it's, I find myself doing it in all conversations, being in radio for a hundred years, dead air gets me. And it's, I know it's stupid to think that it's, it's, it's wrong, but that's what happens. Well, actually I've said that to people. I'm like, Matt, especially in our earlier episodes that you talked more than I did, but I was like, well, he talks when I have no idea what to say. I'm, I'm over here waving at him. like, Say something. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you do have that, that blank look. And so I'm like, ah! But I get the blank look too, but then I just go blah, 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 and babble. Uh, another one here is a good point from uh, this guy in Australia. Really good. Fantastic podcast. Love it. Regarding episode 68. One way of knowing that the car was running, she's talking about Maggie's car, which allegedly was running, is if it is, could be heard idling in the background on Paul's video. Never thought about that. I've had some other people who have sent me similar things, and I'm still kind of sorting through them because I've just inundated right now. Also, lots of messages. <laughs> but right I'm, I'm weeding through them. Yes, we're, well, you will get to them. And if you want to reach out, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com or... Oh, what am I supposed to say? See, this is where I have to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, keep that in there. <laughs> or, and this is where you go... Um, Facebook. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you can reach us out. You can reach us on Facebook at Murdoch Podcast or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. I'm a mess too. We're both a mess, but we appreciate it. And we will talk soon. Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.